Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello. You're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Crunch time at COP. After a draft agreement was heavily criticised, talks were expected to run into the night as countries fight to end fossil fuels. Plus, pressure mounts on Israel as the UN General Assembly votes overwhelmingly for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Resolution A stroke ES10 stroke L27 has been adopted. And with almost a 1,000 cases last week alone, we look at the impact RSV is having on our hospitals. Delegates at the COP28 Climate Summit are set to work through the night to try and reach a consensus on the text for a draft deal. This comes after the initial draft agreement was criticised for removing a commitment to phase out fossil fuels. The new text is believed to be released in the early hours of tomorrow morning. Well, joining me now to discuss this further is Green Party TD and Chair of the Oireachtas Climate Committee, Brian Ledden. Sinn Féin TD and Spokesperson on Environment and Climate Action, Darren O'Rourke. Independent TD, Verona Murphy. The CEO of Friends of the Earth, Oisín Cotlin. And the CEO for Fuels for Ireland, Kevin McPartland. You're all very welcome to the programme. Oisín, to come to you first. Do we have any sense now that there is going to be an agreement on the text and how far that text is going to come from the text that was so panned yesterday? We can't know for sure. We know that the presidency got a slap in the face yesterday from far more countries than would normally be critical of a text. He was rejected roundly and like take, we're kind of withdrawn pretty quickly. And there have been now over 24 hours of really intensive consultations with all the parties. It does sound like they are really trying to get some agreed text. Uh, but we, until it's published and until we see the reactions, because it's very hard to bridge the gap between the likes of Saudi Arabia and Russia, who don't want any mention of fossil fuels, basically they can have that, and the small island states who are saying, you know, not, not committing to phasing out fossil fuels is a death warrant for our, for our countries, for our states. It's very hard to bridge that gap. Uh, the presidency did a very bad job yesterday. Can they move the text far enough to, to offer hope to both those parties in the room and the rest of us around the world, it's not clear yet. We have been told, we're reading, I think, on Bloomberg, that there will be some sight of this text at 6am tomorrow morning. If there is no mention of fossil fuels being phased out, is that a failure of COP? Yeah, I think, we, I think having had such a spotlight on fossil fuels at this COP, particularly after the, after the, the joust between Mary Robinson and President Al-Jabbar of the COP, 
if they don't come up with some language that's clearly showing that, that at least the, the direction of travel and how far we have to go, even if it's not as watertight as the likes of I would like it to be, it has to be there pretty clearly and pretty solidly if, it's, if the process is to have any credibility. Uh, Brian Ledden, the Director General of COP28 said about the draft agreement yesterday, you know, that basically it was just there to sort of spark conversation, I think is what he said, it was to spark a reaction. It certainly did that. Do you believe him or do you think that was a true um, sense of what particularly those at the head of COP this year are looking for? Well, I don't know, but uh, I, I think it's possible that they were introducing a text that was uh, so far from uh, what might be agreed eventually so that they won't be pulled to, you know, a more ambitious text in the end. That's, you know, this is... Uh, That's the sceptic and you think this might have been strategic? I think so, yeah, yeah. And, um, and we'll see what happens now in, in, you know, are we going to breathe a sigh of relief because uh, something a little bit better is, is introduced in the morning. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully it's much, much better than what, uh, what we saw yesterday, which was quite derisory. Uh, and um, yeah, I think we're, you know, like it, we can't have a cop that is a step back from last year and uh, there isn't, that we don't countenance the phase out of fossil fuels. Like it's clear as day, it's been clear as day to anybody in this part of the world for a long, long time that that's what we need to be looking at if we're okay, to get so to net zero by 2050. For you, it's not phase down, it's phase out. It has to be that language. Yeah, you have to get there. You have to be realistic about it. It is about being in line with the science. Um, the, realistically, in 2050, there has to be very, very uh, minimal fossil fuel use in the world. It's simply not credible that uh, there will be. And we can do it. It's, it's possible to do it. But we're not going to do it unless we get strong agreement, uh, strong consensus internationally, and those signals are sent uh, to you know to uh, every country, every sector, uh, that this is where we're going, and we need to get there as fast as we can. Okay, so Brian Ledden, Verona says we can do it. You're sceptical. Well, it's not so much that I'm sceptical. I just don't see where the plan is for the just transition. And I mean, for the whole COP, we've heard about phasing out fossil fuel, but I haven't heard anything about what the just transition will mean or what it will be accommodated by. Like, we don't have alternatives. It's as simple as that. We don't, I mean, are we going to have nuclear here on the island? Because if everybody was to buy an electric car in the morning, we'd bust the grid. You know, we don't have, we can't even access the grid can't take anymore as such from what we're building. So I think the reality is people, the people I'm speaking to, are very concerned that we have Minister Eamon Ryan at COP28 negotiating on our behalf, signing up to deadlines, and we've seen it before, that just can't be met. Because Do you think quite... it's not realistic? What about having ambition? Oh, there is ambition. There's been ambition since I can remember. I mean, I was, as you well know, I was a haulier. I don't know of any sustainable, viable alternative to fossil fuel to run in the commercial sector, except where we've said before, hydrogenated vegetable oil, which doesn't need mechanical changes, but it isn't even being incentivized. Okay. Do you agree with Verona, Darren O'Rourke? Well, I think um, there's nearly two, two separate points. One, COP is, you know, very high level international agreement. I think there is a very significant element of just transition being negotiated at COP in relation to climate justice and the loss and damage funding for those people who are actually on the front line in relation to the climate emergency, those people in the, you know, uh, small island nations the, in the global south. But I think it is a, a fair point to say that, you know, there is a, a fundamental to the transition is that it's a just transition. In my opinion, you don't deliver on these mm -hmm. targets unless it's done in a just and fair way. 
I think it is fair to say that there are, you know, a number of areas that there are, you know, difficult to abate. Um, there are question marks in terms of the technology. The, the roadmap isn't as clear. I think for me, it's about prioritising those areas that the roadmap is very clear, for example, in the area of renewables and doing the best you can to ensure that there is a smooth transition for those areas like like long haulage, um, like the, the, the heat sector. Okay. Where, where but just to be clear, Sinn Féin's position is yes, the phrase phase out, this commitment oh, oh, to end the use of fossil fuels needs to I be think there. I think the, 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 the science uh, uh, dictates that, in my opinion. And the and timeline, the, yeah. I suppose, is the big thing in all of this, isn't there? And that was one of the criticisms of yesterday. There, were no, there was no sense of a timeline here. There was no dates, there was no deadlines. What do you say to that? What should the timeline be? Oh, well, well, first, it's net zero by, by 2050, and it's to be as aggressive as is, as is possible. And, and Kevin and others are, are here and, and ha have, have a voice at the table. But we have to be very clear. We need to move away from fossil fuels. We need to do it as aggressively as possible. And in, is a just and fair way as we can do it. And, and in my opinion, the state needs to lead in relation to that. There's significant opportunity to build new economies, to um, to, to return for, for communities, for community-led renewables, for example, for state-owned renewables, okay. harness our natural wealth for the for 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 uh, <coughs> national wealth. Okay, but just, just sorry, before you move to Kevin, I just like we've had this discussion a number of times, and when we talk about just transition, like we we have technology in cars and trucks today that are Euro six. They're actually relatively clean engines, even for fossil fuel. Where, where it's confusing for people is that they're being told mining batteries, mining to create battery power is actually by no means clean. And that's where the difficulty is for people. It's not disputing this. Okay, Ashin, do it's you... what the clean alternatives mm -hmm. are. Electric, electric power is cleaner even with batteries, than fossil fuel power. And there's just no, there's no getting around the fact we have to stop burning fossil fuels as fast as possible. And I saw in the last week reports of, of electrically powered, I think there was a Renault, trucks. Like the, the technology is coming. There are challenges for but sure. There are it is a transition. But look, challenges. for example, You'll we had only 10... trucks on the road. We had only 10%, we had only 10 of our electricity coming from renewables in about 2010, and now we're at 40%. That's a huge change. In OK, just I just want to bring years. in Kevin McPartin, because you did say in one of your vision documents previously that turning off the tap is not an option here. Do you think the phrase phase out and call it what you may, should be in this COP28 deal. 100%. So what we're looking at is a situation where, you know, for the, for the president of COP to say that the science doesn't support that fossil fuel needs to be phased out is absurd. So let's just put that on, on the record. It, 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 clearly, we do need to phase out. But there is a key word there, which is phase out. Mm. What, what is simply not possible, and, and, you know, typically sitting on the fence, I kind of agree with everybody. What, what is not possible is to switch off at midnight tonight. If we switched off at midnight tonight, there'd be ambulances on the side of the road, there'd be coast guards, there'd be... Yeah, and I no, don't think anybody is suggesting that. Oh, exactly. That's okay. why they've used the let phrase, me tell, phase out. Yeah, well, let me tell you what we're, what we're also not suggesting, is that we continue to do business which is based on the sale of diesel, gasoline and kerosene as our main products. That's, so that's the phase out. I mean, Verona is right. There are real concerns about the pace in which we can move things forward, and there are problems. You know, I have members who are desperate to increase the number of ultra-fast chargers on their forecourts, but the electricity network isn't up to it. We have people who are looking to introduce more and more advanced synthetic and biofuels who are being stymied by a taxation system which is designed to... Um, 
disencourage the, the use of fossil fuels, but, but taxes that apply to non-fossil fuels. So there are also things that need to be done. I think that there, there is a need for an improved roadmap. And also part of that road, roadmap needs to be that we explore all of the options. So instead of saying that the only way to decarbonise heating is to move to heat pumps, is to also look at advanced synthetic biofuels, to look at hydrogen, to say that the only way to decarbonise transport is to electrify everything and ignore the other possibilities. We, if we're serious about this being an emergency, and I am, mm. and I'm sure everybody here is, then we have to explore all of the available opportunities and we have to do I, the okay, things so that are transitionary. Okay, I want to let Brian Ledden back in here. Is the government... Sorry, sorry Verona, I want to let Brian back in. Is the government, I think what you're saying is a bit ideological about the alternatives and they're not being realistic about some of the other alternatives who, that are out there. What do you no, say to I that? I don't think anybody system? is saying that there is a single solution in any one sector. There's a 400-page climate action plan uh, published 12 months ago. It's going to be revised in the next few weeks. We're going to see what's new in it. Uh, like, there's so much detail there. But I really want to challenge the idea that we can't phase out fossil fuels. We're actually doing it in this country. And the reason Eamon Ryan was selected uh, to lead, to be one of the Europe, European Union's lead negotiators in COP is because we have a, a really ambitious strategy in this country. And we are actually doing it. We're down 54% uh, in coal for electricity generation this year. We're down 83% in oil this year for electricity generation. And we're down 5% in gas. Ireland actually is showing the way. So the idea that this can't be done in 25 years when, as Oshin says, we've moved from 10% renewable energy 12 years ago to 40% now, and we're going to go to 80% by 2030. We can absolutely do this, and every country in the world can do it as well. OK, well, what do you say then to the report that was published at the beginning of COP, the Climate Change Performance Index, which I'm sure you're aware of, which is an independent group that monitors 63 countries and how they protect the climate. They have put Ireland at 43, 43rd in the list out of 63. We have slipped six places in the last year. That doesn't say to me that the figures that you put are actually being reflected in us achieving our targets and making real changes. You know, we are actually coming from a very low base as well. Ireland was really, really late to, to the game in reducing uh, emissions and coming up with strategies to do so. Uh, it has those now, but it has to, it does have to move to implementation. We've got to get good at that. But why and have actually, we slipped six places when you're saying there's been such efforts? We... I will have to look at that, but we are absolutely going in the right direction, and I don't think anybody can legitimately say that we're not. And the EPA report that Just was published like this year, sorry, can legitimately the, the say, EPA Brian, report that we're negotiating this year at COP when we don't know down. what the alternatives are. How can we sign up to no, deadlines when we don't actually know what the very, just transition very, will look like? It's, what uh, we will use? Eight years ago in Paris, 194 countries signed up to stay within the 1.5 limit or at least well below Not 2 degrees. Not disputing that. But, but in order to do that, it, it was implicit and, and in fact well understood at the time, that that meant a transformation And of, how much of, of will our... we pay financially for not meeting targets that we But how much will we pay financially we if, if, we have, if we see the kind of climate chaos that is, in, that is advancing around the world is that there... will destroy well, our we're economy not... over time? We won't oh. solve it. OK, is but there a danger... if we sit on the fence, like you're suggesting, we, we well, definitely won't solve it. I'm not saying we sit on the fence. I'm asking somebody to show me where the plan is for just transition and what it involves. OK, is there a danger here, Darren O'Rourke, the point that Verona's making, that there will be, I think, you know, pretty serious economic damage to this country if we try and move too fast because we just don't have the alternatives ready? Well, I suppose it depends on uh, the models, the policies, the, the incentives that, that you use, because you could, you could flip that and say there's spectacular opportunity here for the state and for its communities in every corner of Ireland, including Wexford and the Northwest and in areas that, you know, government after 
after government has been talking about regional imbalance, we can get that right if we employ the right policies. My criticism of government is that there hasn't been enough state-led, there hasn't been enough uh, return on community. And for example, if you take retrofitting, for example, if you look at TASC and Kodima's report last week, mm. saying working class communities in Dublin feel like they're being left behind. If we look at every individual policy and ask for the equity test, the, the just transition test, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, okay. you know, I, okay, I just want to let Kevin back in here because yeah. we're running out of time. You asked, is there a danger of a big economic uh, impact? Yes, there is a danger. But can that danger be managed? And is there also an opportunity, are there also opportunities with it? Yes, there are. We already have a situation in Ireland where we are producing hydrogen on a commercial scale, where that is being used. We have a production of biofuels here, which can be scaled up. We have... Do you agree if, with if, this, Oshin? If we, have, if we take advantage of all of the offshore wind that we have, we will be we're in position to export energy. There are opportunities as well as risk, and we have to embrace... So I agree with a lot of what Kevin said, and, and I mean, not that, this is a compliment, not a, not a criticism. If, if Saudi Arabia whose business relies on fossil fuels, speaking like Kevin, yeah. we'd all be a lot happier tonight. Mm. So, like, acknowledging that there has to be the transition. And, but, and the key thing is the tarot technologies do exist. And the, 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 uh, around electricity, for example, and I'm, 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 I think we do differ around biofuels, but I'm, ha I'm very happy for, the, for those things to be explored and for the evidence to be, to be, to be looked at. Yeah. But the evidence suggests that, for example, hydrogen doesn't make sense for home heating and that, and that we should be looking so at electrification. So, as a small island, we can't have hydrogen for home heating. We can't have hydrogen for trucks because we don't have them. We can't, we don't have anything as an alternative. Let me just give you a practical application. An electric truck carries 10 tonnes of batteries. It's possibly 10 tonnes, maybe more. The payload of any vehicle is 20 tonnes. The technology so we end is up... advancing rapidly. It's though. not, no, it's not. And we have a very I mean, ambitious rail freight rapidly. strategy as well. Excuse me now, There's a huge ambition there. We're going to reopen the Limerick to Foyne railway line. We're going to reopen Irish Rail operating Euro 1 engine. Euro 1 trucks are Euro 6 Very quickly, very quickly. All right, sorry, folks, you're all talking over each other. We can hear nothing. Taking Euro 6 trucks off final word, very briefly. Let us acknowledge that that sector has real challenges and that the state and everyone else needs to find solutions. But let not that colour the overall challenge I, we face, which is a rapid and sustained is reduction about in emissions. The right. solution for a just transition. Look, we're going to have to leave that conversation there for now, but it is certainly one that we will come back to. My thanks to Brian Layden, to Darren O'Rourke, Rona Murphy and Kevin McPartland. After the break, the UN General Assembly votes overwhelmingly for a Gaza ceasefire, but what impact, if any, will it have? Welcome back. Well, in a non-binding resolution, the United Nations General Assembly has voted for an immediate Gaza ceasefire. 153 member states voted in favour, 10 against, and there were 23 abstentions. But what impact, if any, will this have? Well, CEO of Friends of the Earth, Oshin Cochlin, has stayed with me and he is joined down the line by Professor of International Politics at the Clinton Institute at UCD, Scott Lucas. Scott, you are welcome, as always, to the programme. First of all, can you explain the difference between the vote we saw last Friday at the UN Security Council and this vote at the UN General Assembly? The main difference between the two votes is that a Security Council vote is binding, whereas a General Assembly vote is non-binding. So when the Security Council, because of the US veto, 
despite voting 13 to 1 for a ceasefire, that U.S. veto blocked any U.N. move to try to enable a ceasefire. You know, it blocked, for example, the idea of a peacekeeping force that the U.N. would be behind. The General Assembly, although you have this overwhelming vote for the ceasefire, there's going to be no enforcement. There's no political military action that follows, even if, and I think this is the main significance, it sends a very powerful diplomatic signal that Ireland, uh, that, sorry, that Israel is largely isolated now as it continues uh, the ground and air operations, killing so many people in Gaza. But I suppose given the fact that I think Israel has already said that they would reject any vote from the UN General Assembly. They have said before that they believe that the UN is biased against Israel. Does it have any impact there in Israel, particularly, I suppose, in Benjamin Netanyahu's mind? No, I mean, we need to have the cold reality and be honest with your viewers. And that is this mass killing in Gaza, which is killing Hamas fighters, but is also killing civilians. Uh, we now have more than 18,000 people who are dead in Gaza since October 7th. This continues until the Israeli War Cabinet, those three people, the Prime Minister, Defense Minister, uh, the former Chief of the Military, until they decide to stop. Uh, the UN does not have any leverage with the Israelis to make them stop. Most of the international community doesn't have leverage with the Israelis to make them stop. The only country that I think has leverage to make the Israelis stop operations is the United States. But the United States has given up its political leverage by, again, voting no tonight after casting its veto on the Security Council a few days ago. And there's no way it will exercise its other leverage, which is to cut military assistance, the supply of weapons, some of which Israel is using in its air and ground campaigns in Gaza right now. I mean, there was, Scott, a General Assembly vote last year, wasn't there, on um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think for that there was 140 countries voted in favour of this condemnation of Russia, significantly less this evening. Why the difference in approach? Is it because of Hamas and what happened on October 7th, or is it more than that? Well, I, you know, the Israelis are going to give you, and I'm sure you'll speak to their spokesman about how everyone's biased against us, etc. I don't think we have to make a direct numerical comparison of the two cases. I think we take each in turn. Russia invaded Ukraine. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Russia committed an aggression against Ukraine. Russia has committed war crimes in Ukraine. That's what a large majority of countries have seen. Uh, and even though there's a lot of politics around the UN, at the end of the day, countries do vote on what they see as the facts. And what are the facts regarding what has happened 
On October 7th, Hamas carried out a mass killing in Israel. A lot of countries sympathized with Israel in the need to defend itself. But when Israel turned to offensive operations, and especially offensive operations that killed, well, the vast majority of casualties were going to be civilians, then countries are going to turn against Israel and say, no, this is not legitimate. And you cannot hide behind legitimacy any more than Vladimir Putin can hide behind legitimacy to justify his attempt to conquer Ukraine. I mean, you said there, Scott, that, look, Israel, I think we've recognised, you know, say the UN is biased towards them, mm. and this vote isn't binding, but you mentioned that it does have weight, it has a moral weight, and it has a political weight. The fact that the US continues to take this position, how isolated are they and how damaging is it to their reputation globally and particularly, I suppose, in the Middle East where they have other allies? Well, first thing I want to say is, you know, as someone who comes from the United States, there is a significant shift in the U.S. at the level of opinion on the ground. I have witnessed far more people being uh, critical of Israel, or at least not supporting it this time, than in the previous four cycles of violence in Gaza or in the numerous wars between Israel, Palestine, and Arab states going back to 1948. That said, I think the U.S. leadership, the political leadership, including the Biden administration, much of the U.S. media are isolating themselves in terms of, again, calling out what is happening inside Gaza. It is quite right to say that we should gather all the facts and quite right to criticize Hamas for what is occurring. But when you continue to enable Israel to carry out the killing of civilians as well as attacking Hamas, a lot of people are going to think, no, you too have crossed a line. And to give you one example of where the U.S. has isolated itself, even last Friday, as it was telling Israel to limit civilian casualties, the Biden administration requested another 45,000 tank shells to be delivered to Israel. Tank shells are not to defend Israel. Therefore, the offensive capability to keep up the attacks. And the longer these attacks go on, it will not just be Israel that suffers in terms of legitimacy. It will be the United States. We just don't know yet what effects that will have on the American position, not just in the Middle East, but in the rest of the world, including in Europe and in Ireland. And do you think, Scott, that that is something that plays on the Democrats' mind and it plays on Joe Biden's mind, this damage to his legacy, to his own reputation, to America's in reputation on a global stage? I think it plays into a lot of what the State Department tried to do uh, in the first phase of this conflict. And in the first phase, which was the phase before we had that humanitarian pause a few weeks ago, uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and other American officials, along with most of the international community, were trying to get Israel to hold off on the ground offensive and to limit the air attacks. And I think they realize, they're professional diplomats, they realize that this does not put the U.S. in a good position. But the reality is, is that they don't have leverage. And Joe Biden, to take the man at the top, well, he did say today, well, you know, Israel, you know, you're going to, international opinion is going to turn against you if you, go, if you do this. But 24 hours ago, Joe Biden, who I think is emotively invested in this, said, I'm a Zionist. In other words, Biden still sides with the notion of Israel and the idea of Israel, even as it's carrying out these attacks in Gaza. 
And that idea is not just with Joe Biden. It's still a powerful idea in much of American political culture. That's what's happening in America. What about in Israel? Do you get any sense at all, Scott Lucas, that ordinary people there are tiring of of the conflict and are concerned about the loss of life in Gaza at the minute? Yeah, they are tiring of it. And I think you saw a vivid example a few weeks ago, which is you saw these mass demonstrations in Israel, which were saying the priority is, is to get our hostages back from Gaza. Um, and indeed, Benjamin Netanyahu told the Americans, you've got to help me do this. So that pressure inside Israel was one reason why we got that week-long pause in which about maybe 100 of the 240 hostages were traded for women and children in Israeli prisons. The problem is, is that once it became apparent that no more hostages were going to be released, that segment of Israeli public opinion lost its leverage with the government. And the problem is, not just in Israel, but in any country, once leaders decide they're going to go into war, you're in a Bacchus or Sackus position. And how many Israelis are going to stand up against the war cabinet and be accused of betraying their countries? That's a tall order to ask them to do, even though I know a lot of Israelis are not comfortable with what is happening right now. All right, uh, let me just go to uh, Ashin Kathleen, who's joined me here in studio. Uh, Ashin, you did at one point work with Christian Aid and you travelled the region uh, and you were in Jerusalem and some of the occupied Palestinian uh, territories. What struck you about the area when you travelled there? I mean, even then, and it was almost 20 years ago now, Israel was creating facts on the ground by building illegal settlements that was undermining the thing that could bring lasting peace, which is a two-state solution, with the two states living side by side under international law and in peace. And they were building illegal settlements that made it more and more difficult for that reality to seem, uh, that, that aspiration to seem possible to, to, to Palestinians. Uh, and indeed, you know, Israel has, has, a, has enabled Hamas uh, in many ways financially and has been happy enough that there's been this split between the West Bank and Gaza uh, because it kind of weakens the Palestinian cause overall. So it, it, nothing that justifies what Hamas did on, on, on October 7th. But now it's really unclear what, what's the end game here. The end game cannot be... Uh, leveling Gaza and it being it, it, unable for these two million people who live there to, to, to live there, they they have a right to live there. In fact, many of them are, are refugees there in the first place uh, from from 1948. They have a right to live there in peace and security. And at the moment, that is being you know leveled to, to the ground uh, at, at rates we haven't seen for decades by by the Israeli uh, invasion. Uh, and I don't think the Israeli war objective of eliminating Hamas entirely. Is, is, is physically or politically possible, particularly you're alienating a whole other generation uh, by, by, by what's happening. So we need a ceasefire and we need, ultimately, we'll need peace talks on a solution that lasts beyond a week or a month into, into years ahead. And I do think that Biden is, is, is jeopardizing his own position. He's losing the left of his own party. He's losing young voters. I think actually, you know, this, the, tonight's vote will add as weight and adds, adds, adds pressure. But actually, I think it'll be his campaign considerations next year if he feels that he's, he's bleeding votes and, and enthusiasm that he needs desperately in, in his in election with, with Trump might be what makes him apply more pressure to Israel uh, to, to, for a ceasefire.
All right, we're also joined by MSNBC analyst and best-selling author David Korn. David, you are very welcome to the programme. Uh, we were speaking to Scott Lucas there a little earlier. We were talking about the overall, I suppose, support for Israel that still remains in America. But there are recent surveys, aren't there, which show that there is a pretty stark divide by party affiliation and by age. How significant is that? It's pretty significant. We're seeing somewhat of a generational shift here. In conventional American politics, support for Israel, even for its far-right governments of the recent years, has always seemed to be a given. And the American Israel Political Action Committee, which is which often represents the interest of the Israeli government, you know, called, you know, they're called pro-Israel supporters, has been very powerful within Congress, within political campaigns. But we see with the current war uh, more open criticism from Democrats, particularly progressive Democrats, and younger Democrats and Democrats in, in communities of color. And it has created a debate, a divide within the Democratic Party. Uh, it remains to be seen just how deep this will go. It's very, you know, it's very sharp at the moment for obvious reasons, with the horrendous bombing still underway in Gaza and the civilian death toll there rising. Um, where, you know, what happens in the next few months is going to determine for Biden and the Democrats, and maybe for the future United States, how much of an impact this might have on the next election. You know, I don't think it's a guarantee that it will, but if the war goes on for many more months and Biden is seen as not doing all he can to curb Israel and its uh, continuing assault on Gaza and with, the, with, that, with that horrendous civilian death toll, I think he may end up paying a price. And his, his campaign and Democratic campaigns in general count on younger voters, also younger organizers, and on voters of color. And so if you eat into that, and if you look in some key states, like Michigan is a key state in the presidential election, and you know the, the toss-up there could be a couple of thousand votes difference, and the Arab American community, which is not very big throughout the United States, but it is particularly big in Michigan and, and a few other key states, if they turn on Biden and stay in that locked in that position, that could have a real impact on a very close election next year. Um, we did see this afternoon Joe Biden sort of issue the harshest criticism of the war, I think, yet. Yeah. He warned Netanyahu sort of to change tack or he would risk global support. Do you think that's an acknowledgement of that, that fear that Biden feels over his position? You know, it may well be. I, I think Joe Biden... I think there are two things motivating him right now. I think one is doing what he believes is the right thing on policy. And he's been a longtime Israel, Israel supporter. He chaired the Foreign Relations Committee. He's, you know, believes that he has a fair degree of foreign policy expertise. And he does. And he kind of bet, at least in, at the beginning, that if he was publicly supportive of Netanyahu and his far-right government, that that would allow him to influence Netanyahu's decisions in the course of the war, you know, behind closed doors. And it seems like there's been maybe a little bit of that, but not nearly enough to change the overall contours 
of the war. So do you and not, that, sorry to cut across you, do you not think then that we are going to see any sort of significant shift in his position when it comes to Israel, well, even if this war continues yeah, and think, the death toll continues to rise? I think this. I think the statement that you that you pointed to today was significant. Was you know a, a slight turn of the screw on Netanyahu, but not too much. And I think if Biden does anything, it won't be a dramatic shift, as you alluded to. It will be a continuing slow-paced, you know, pr- you know, applying application of pressure, and that may not be enough to help him politically. But I don't see him, you know, cutting. Netanyahu off or, or taking him out in any certain way. But, um, you know, he may get there depending how things go on. And, you know, we're right now we see the prospect of the war widening with what's happening on the Lebanon border with Israel. So uh, this can go in a lot of different directions. Um, you know, Biden won't do anything, I mean, I don't think so, too dramatic but he may change his own course of action if Netanyahu does not change Israel's. Okay, I just want to just acknowledge, I suppose, Ashin, when we're having this conversation, you know, we sometimes talk about this sort of what feels like kind of abstract, cold political terms when so many of us are so horrified by the footage coming out of there yeah, on a daily in the mean, basis. In the meantime, I just want to acknowledge I that. Mean, I, I think David's analysis is very, is very good, mm. but in the meantime, it is worth remembering that children and people and civilians are dying day after day in Gaza, and how long can we all stand watching that, and can they stand living with it? And Ireland has very strong connections with Biden, and it's time now, after the two no votes from the US, for us to start using that, to speak up against what Biden is doing as Irish people between now and next Patrick's Day. You, let's use that leverage we've got, got over many years to, to, to put pressure on Biden as well. Let's add to that pressure. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks to Oshin Coughlin, to Scott Lucas and to David Curran. David, thank you for joining us. We look at the impact of rising cases of RSV, especially in our children and what it is doing to our hospitals. Very welcome back. Well, there's been a notable rise in RSV in young children with almost 1,000 cases last week alone. Dr Scott Walken is the clinical lead in infection control at the Irish College of GPs and he joins me now for more on this. You're very welcome to the programme, I suppose. Let's start with the very basics here. What is RSV and just how potentially serious can it be? So thank you, Claire. Uh, good evening to you. Uh, so RSV is a really common winter virus and it happens every year and uh, it's happening again this year. And for the vast majority of pe- people, thankfully, it's actually quite a mild virus, you know, it causes head cold symptoms. There are a small number of people that do get severe illness. Uh, or a small proportion of people that get a severe illness, and they tend to be at the extremes of age. So for those people, sometimes uh, they they uh, they need hospital admission, and we we are seeing that at the moment. How do you then, as a parent, differentiate between a child that has RSV and a child that has you know a seasonal cold? Well, with with head colds, people generally aren't too sick with them. They're certainly inconvenient uh, and they're certainly unpleasant, but they're generally not too sick with them. So kids will often, they'll, they'll eat a bit less than they usually would, but they'll continue to drink. They'll often play. They'll be interested in, you know, watching television and so forth. Um, 
with more severe illness, uh, children tend to have a bit of difficulty with breathing. Uh, they'll be very miserable. They won't be interested in playing. Uh, with babies, if they haven't passed urine in the last 12 hours, that's a, that's a, a sign of more severe illness. And parents often just have an intuition that their children are sick, and they're often quite right about that. So I, I, what I would say to parents is that they should trust their, their instinct. And if they're worried that their child is really sick, particularly if they're short of breath, uh, or if they've, uh, you know, a blue discoloration of their, their lips, or if they're just really miserable and listless, uh, well, well, then they should, uh, they should have their child seen by a doctor. And would you recommend in that instance, because I've been in that situation myself, do you go to your, your GP, your out-of-hours doctor service, or do you go straight to, to hospital, to A&E with a child in that condition? So uh, in a child who is very distressed and who has uh, blue lips and has great difficulty breathing, that's an emergency that should go to the emergency department. But that's very much the exception. So most children are uh, well enough that they don't need to go directly to the emergency department and should be assessed by their GP or if it's out of hours by the out of hours service. Having said that, the vast majority of children who have RSV won't need to be seen by a doctor at all. Uh, and they can be managed at home with pain relief once they're reasonably well. Um, is it contagious? Is there any sort of a, you know, isolation period? You know, should you be trying to keep your child away from the other children in the house? Yeah, so RSV is quite contagious, actually, like all of the winter viruses, like COVID, like the flu. Uh, so if people are sick, uh, whether it's an adult or a child, they should stay home from work or from school and they should try to avoid mixing with other people. It really is very difficult within a household to separate particularly young children from other people in the house. So, you know, sure, people should do the best they can, but realistically, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do that. I think, uh, you know, certainly staying home from creche, staying home from uh, from school uh, or for older people staying home from work is 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 the HSE advice uh, the other things that can help transmission can help reduce transmission is uh, cough etiquette and uh, careful hand washing uh, so they're important strategies also to reduce the chance of transmission of RSV and other winter viruses okay. and the other thing and happy that, birthday when we're washing our hands then is it Twice, yeah, twice, twice apparently. Just yeah. to be clear. Um, you, I mentioned there at the top of this item, uh, Doctor, that there's been a 1,000 cases in the last week. Is that more than you would expect for RSV at this time of year? And if so, why? So the numbers are up compared to last year. And in fact, last year, uh, was there were high numbers also. Now, I don't think anyone knows for certain why that is, uh, but I think part of it is likely to be increased testing of RSV. So it, it, some of the cases would have been there in previous years, but not labeled as RSV. They would have been called, you know, a head cold or a viral infection. So there is increased testing, and I think that's part of it. Um, there is a theory that, uh, you know, the reduced social contact and mixing during the pandemic year meant that a little bit less immunity exists within the community to RSV and indeed to other viruses. Uh, and that means that there may be an increased population who are susceptible to these winter viruses, including RSV. So I suppose that really highlights the importance of uh, vaccines against uh, winter illnesses, and in particular against the flu and COVID. And there is the needle-free nasal flu vaccine available. It's now available for all children aged two to 17, uh, and that's free. 
and it's painless because it's a little spray up the nose. And interestingly enough, if there's a high uptake of uh, nasal flu vaccine, it reduces the amount of influenza or flu-like illness in adults. So preventing flu in children means that there's less flu circulating in adults. Okay, uh, so it helps. Briefly, sorry to cut across you there. I'm just uh, conscious of time and I want to ask you about the impact this is having on our hospitals, particularly, I suppose, on the children's hospitals. Are we seeing increased numbers presenting at A&E and therefore having to be admitted? Yes, so it, that's a little bit outside of my area, but I understand from media reports uh, that the emergency departments and the paediatric emergency departments are busier and that they're also seeing increased numbers of children needing admission to uh, high support care, you know, intensive care. Um, it is only a small proportion of people that need to go into intensive care, but if you've got a lot of illness, well, then that small proportion can end up being a, a higher number, if you know what I mean. Uh, so, yes, I mean, when there's a high level of winter viruses, uh, that will have a knock-on effect. Uh, but again, vaccination can, can help to reduce that. So that's a key thing in our armory to try and prevent these illnesses and to reduce hospital overcrowding. All right, we will leave it there, uh, Doctor. Thank you for bringing us uh, that update and that information this evening. Well, that is it from us. My thanks to all of my guests and to you at home. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, EMTV. From all the late team here, good night and do take care.